I'm uh, filling in this morning for Pastor Ryan, who's experiencing a few days of uh, vacation. He'll be back on Tuesday. So uh, that uh, brings you an update on, uh, on him. Uh, and maybe just a bit on where we're going this morning. Uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago, and I really appreciate the uh, advance notice he gives me on sharing on any given Sunday. But uh, he uh, uh, indicated that uh, this would be following the 40th anniversary celebration, and he would like uh, a message directed to getting into our neighborhood, getting into our community, that kind of thing. And uh, two weeks ago, you know, I was here, and we were in the portion of the Kings, and uh, I was assigned to deal with Samuel and Saul and David, and uh, kind of as the Israel, the people of God, got into a, a kingdom versus God being their king and being... Uh, his people. And uh, so I was really focused on that. That's where your mind ends up being. And then two weeks later, I've got another message, but I realized that so much of what found its way to the cutting room floor, you know, in sermon preparation, about 90% of stuff that you study and deal with and chew on never makes it to the pulpit anyway. But there's a lot of good stuff down there. So I picked it up. And uh, so we're back at uh, dealing with the kings this morning, but uh, in a little different format. And I want to just share from 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, if you get the one principle I want to share this morning, going forward will not be an issue at all in this church. The question will be how far and how fast. If each of us comes to grip with the one principle I want to talk to you about, and I'll tell you what that is when we get there. I'm going to work my way up to that. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, just keep in mind that Saul was uh, made king. Uh, God was not happy about that. He acquiesced to the desires of the people and allowed them to appoint a king. But Saul, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, was not all that interested in God. He was interested in a position. He was interested in notoriety. He was interested in keeping the people happy, which he felt kept him in pretty good standing. God seemed to uh, didn't, uh, not have a part or a place uh, in his plan. So this morning, uh, we're, kind of, we're, we're moving to that next step. And I've called it simply the David story. More has been written about David than any other biblical character outside of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Abraham, the father of our faith, has 14 chapters of the Holy Word committed to his life and his ministry. Joseph also has 14 chapters. Jacob has 11, the prince of Israel. Elijah, the great prophet, has 10. But there are some 66 chapters given to David and 60 more references in the New Testament. Now, if you ask the average person on the street, even someone that's a nominal believer or somebody that's not a believer at all, everybody knows about David. And if you ask the average person on the street what they know about David, they'll come up with two things. One, he killed Goliath. And two, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. They will remember his greatest victory and his greatest defeat. Now with Goliath, we see a man that was led by the Holy Spirit with great spiritual strength. And with Bathsheba, a man that had great spiritual weakness, led by his self-centered lust and desires. So what does the David story have to offer us this morning? 
about living this human life, about living life well. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? How can I live this life well? What does God have to say to me? What does the Scripture have to bring to bear upon my life and my situation and my activities and my routine and my family and all of that? That's what we're here this morning to hear about. And God has something to say to us. Oh, we deal with a lot of other things when you're dealing with David. You deal with anger, parents, enemies, friends, children, spouses, pride, humiliation. You deal with rejection and siblings, sickness and death, sexuality, justice, fear. To say nothing of diapers and faxes. Breakfast and traffic jams and bounce checks, clogged drains. I remember 14 years ago when my first grandchild was born, Traven. And my favorite time with our children were the teenage years. I love the teenage years. I love the teenage years with all of them. My least favorite was that first few months. Now that was Pat's favorite, so it worked out well for us. I'm off the hook for 12, 13 years. She liked that part. But unfortunately, a few months after Trayvon was born, he was about five years old. And Heidi, my daughter, and Pat were wanting to go Christmas shopping, and they needed someone to watch Trayvon. And I seemed to be a good candidate to them for some reason. They wouldn't be gone long, now, I know better than that. Pat, Heidi, Concord Mall, or uh, uh, Glenbrook Mall. Not long. Christmas shopping. <laughs> so, okay, I, I didn't buy it. But the thing that sold me is when Heidi came and had all of his paraphernalia and all of that stuff, and she said, Dad, now I promise he won't be dirty. <laughs> Which was my number one concern. I guarantee it. It's in the bag. No dirty. He's already taken care of. Everything's going to be fine. We won't be gone that long. No problems. I thought, okay. So I've got my five-month-old grandson. She didn't communicate that to him. And, and it wasn't long, and he was dirty. The thing that really kind of irked me about it, he seemed to be enjoying it. He just seemed to be happy that it was happy. And I'm thinking, oh, Traven. I, I put him down. I said, dude, really? <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is the worst part. And I said, Traven, don't you know I'm a pastor? I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I baptize people. They call on me to pray before important gatherings. And then God speaks. And he says, well, Mr. Pastor, most of what you're going to need to know in life will not happen in sermon preparation. It won't happen while you're attending meetings or serving on committees. And that's what David has to say to us. Always at the forefront and in the background of circumstances and events, with people and places and things is God. Always God. But the David story says that it is God that we have to deal with. 
Now, this is an account of living as a human among other humans. There's not a single miracle in the David story, not one. Now, there's never a question that God is at the center, always present, but this is a story that never bypasses the ordinary, the everyday, the usual. So the David story is to train us in the normative, the routine, the everyday. Because that's where we live, isn't it? That's where we've come from and that's where we're going back to. This is a story of how the Christian life is to be lived. This is the way it's fleshed out. This is the way it's experienced. So I want to read these first few verses for us. 1 Samuel 16. Now remember, Saul has been put aside by God. He is no longer going to be king. He's still inhabiting the throne, but a new king is on the way. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. See, if Saul finds out I'm looking for another king, I'm looking for his replacement, I'm done. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel said, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at things uh, at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord hasn't chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending a sheep. Samuel said, send for him. He will not, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now I'm going to look at three individuals this morning in our time together. And the first is the prophet Samuel. That's Samuel, of course, he's the prophet. Now his grief over the failure of Saul is very revealing because he has now become afraid. He's become fearful for his life. He knew Saul would kill him if he found out that he was looking for a replacement. So Saul is in open rebellion um, against God. And not being able to get to God, he settles to attack God's mouthpiece, which is Samuel. And Samuel had pronounced God's judgment upon Saul. And so God is aware of, Saul's, of Samuel's concern. And so he gives him a little bigger context to work in. Take a heifer, go to Bethlehem, celebrate. 
But really, secondly, you're looking for a king. Saul had failed, but I want you to remember this. When a man or woman of God fails, nothing of God fails. When a man or woman of God changes, nothing of God changes. When someone dies, nothing of God dies. When our lives are altered by the unexpected, nothing of God is altered by the unexpected. God knows exactly what he's doing, and nothing will stop him from bringing that to pass. So what was Samuel's problem? His problem is he was scared. He had gotten his eyes off of God where they had rested for so very long, which is a reminder to each of us that have walked with Christ for any period of time, be cautious, be careful. We're human. And when we divert our attention from God, fear and all of the other ramifications can be ushered in. But God was aware of the situation. Is there a Saul in your life? Is there someone in your life that irritates you? Okay, I have some irritants over here. Somebody in your life that rubs you the wrong way. You more. Anybody that just scrapes you. I just knew it was going to be that way. We're we're human. It's where we live, isn't it? It's how life is. But God knows all about it. And listen, understand, that person is a part of God's plan for your life. Because his sole purpose and consideration for your life is to conform you into the image of the Lord Jesus. That's not an easy path. And so he says, Samuel, go. Go to Bethlehem. You don't have to be smart. You just have to be obedient. This is what what we're hearing this morning. This is what we need to understand. You don't have to be clever. Just obedient. The beautiful thing about this adventure of faith is we can count on God never to leave us astray. All we have to do is be obedient. That's not the one thing I want you to get this morning, but it's a good thing to to make a note of. It'll go along with that. We're simply to obey. Live close to him and walk the the walk. So, look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. Way to go, Samuel! (laughs) He obeyed. That's all we have to do. Obey. He's an old man. He's headed for Bethlehem. Now, the word spread pretty rapidly. Samuel's on the way. Samuel's coming. God's prophet is approaching the village. Now understand the mindset in that day and age. Legendary Samuel. Fierce Samuel. Warrior Samuel. So fear is beginning to grip their heart. What had they done wrong? Who had sinned? Samuel's coming? He wasn't known for his casual drop-in visits. His reputation didn't rest on a lifetime of small talk. What terrible deed had been done in Bethlehem to warrant a prophetic visitation? And so their anxiety is kind of set aside when they find out he came to lead them in worship. Oh, We're just together in celebration before God. Wonderful. And so the mood kind of shifts. 
and a heifer is killed, and a barbecue pit is prepared, and before long the entire village is caught up in a party. But as it turned out, there's a second part to this visit, isn't there? Samuel's looking for a king. Samuel's looking for God's chosen. Samuel's looking for someone to anoint. And so he's located Jesse, he's located his sons, and he proceeds to interview them. Eliab, who was the elder, swaggering mountainous man, commanding attention. And Samuel was impressed. Who wouldn't be? That's how they gauged worth, right? Look at the uh, exterior. Massive, dominant. Clearly, this is the man God wants to be king. Like everybody else in town, Samuel was taken by his appearance. Samuel, see, couldn't look over into chapter 17 because we're not there yet. We've only got chapter 16. That's where we are. He couldn't look ahead. He couldn't look down the way. And see, Eliab was basically critical and negative and condescending. But Samuel's God-trained eye penetrated the surface and saw what Eliab's interior was like. There didn't seem to be much to write home about there. No king material. God's looking for character. God's looking for right heart. He's looking for the largeness of soul. He's looking for someone faithful in small things that would be faithful in larger things. Somebody that's taking care of his father's sheep. Somebody that's in a menial task that he could give a larger task to. Abinadab is next in verse 8. Samuel just dismissed him with a quick gesture. Shema in verse 9 was third. Shake of his head, Samuel dismisses him. And after the third son, the Bible quits naming them. Show's over. Jesse's disappointed. His sons are humiliated. The bleacher crowd wants its money back. What a dismal prophetic performance that was. And Samuel's bewildered. Am I losing my prophetic edge? Do I have the right town? This is Bethlehem, isn't it? You are Jesse, aren't you? Then there must be another son. And as the whole world now knows... <laughs> There was another son, the Hakaton. Now he enters, and that's David, if you're filling out the little blank. I put Hakaton because you'd never be able to spell that one if I just put David. He enters the story, though, unnamed, so keep that in mind for, for a bit. He's unnamed. We don't know his name. He's referred to as what? The youngest. The Hebrew word is Hakaton. He's the Hakaton. There is the Hakaton. It's like saying, well, there's the kid brother. There's the runt of the family. You're the youngest brother of eight. You'll probably never get away from being considered the kid brother or the runt. But Hakaton carries undertones of insignificance, not counting very much. The family runt. Certainly it's no one that would be a candidate for prestigious work. 
and his father's condescending opinion of him and his brother's condescending opinion of him is uh, confirmed by the job he had. What was he doing? Tending the sheep. The least demanding job on the farm. The place where he could do the least amount of damage. And out in the back 40, keep an eye on the sheep. Out of sight, out of mind, you can't hurt too much out there. Maybe babysitting a neighbor's cat or, or sacking groceries at the supermarket might be a, an equivalent job in our economy. And because David was out of the way and mostly ignored as he attended the sheep, nobody thought to bring him. But remember this. David was chosen. Chosen and anointed. Chosen, not for what anybody saw in him, not for what his father thought of him, not what his brothers thought of him, not even what Samuel thought of him, but because of what God saw in him. And then chosen and anointed by God through Samuel to live to God's glory. Why does God choose David? Why does God choose anyone for that matter? What kind of people does God choose? Well, he looks for, I'm going to give you three things. He looks for spirituality. You say, Pastor, that's a theological word and it sounds kind of scary. I just want to say he's not looking for angels in the flesh. There aren't any. There aren't any perfect people. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for certain qualities in people. The same ones he found in David. And the scripture says the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. He's looking for someone. Say, what does that mean? Someone whose life is in harmony with God. What's important to God is important to him. What burdens God burdens him. When God says go to the right, that person goes to the right. When God says stop, that person stops. When God says, listen, you're doing this wrong and I want you to change, he sets about and comes to terms with it because he has a heart for God. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for someone. You may be here this morning saying, I'm, I'm the hackathon. I'm the insignificant. I don't mount too much. They, they give me the least, uh, the, the least responsibility. They don't really even consider me. I'm just kind of an, an addendum to, to their life and to this family and all the rest. That's not the issue. That's where David was. But is my heart hot for God? When God says this, I follow. When God says stop that, I stop it. In 2 Chronicles 16, we're told, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's what God's looking for this morning. That's what he's visited Broadway this morning about, looking for hearts that are completely, totally given to him. We're not to the point yet, but I'll let you know when we get there. But you've got to understand that if we're going to move forward. Secondly is humility. Now, the Lord had already gone to the home of Jesse. In spirit form, he had gone to his home. He's here this morning, by the way. Looking to and fro, up and down. Now, Jesse didn't know he'd been there. Nobody did. But God had been looking around. And he spotted Jesse's youngest son, and he says, in effect, that's my man. 
The boy was faithful in keeping sheep. And God saw a servant's heart in that. In Psalm chapter Psalm 78 at verse 70, it says, He also, that's speaking of God, He also chose David, His servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Why? Because he was looking for someone that had a servant's heart. And he saw him in the sheepfold. He saw him in the insignificant place. He saw him in the mundane and the routine of life. But he saw his heart. God says, I don't care about a slick public image. I want character. I don't care if he has charisma. I don't care if he's of a certain temperament. I want to know if deeply and authentically in his heart he is spiritual and he is a servant. That's what he's looking for this morning. And oh, if he finds it, Fort Wayne, look out. If he finds it, two or three, if he finds a congregation, it's only a matter of how quick and and how fast. Someone that will do what they're told to do. Someone that follows the word. Someone that won't rebel. Someone that respects those in charge. A servant has one great goal, and that's to make the one they serve look better. Someone whose whole heart and focus and life is to do nothing but magnify and glorify the name of Christ. That's who he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. If you remember the Apostle Paul, and he was under all kinds of accusations, slander, physical abuse, and all of the rest. And when things came to Paul because of Paul, he didn't utter a word. Paul was not his focus. But when they attacked the gospel of Christ, when they defamed the name of Jesus, that's when he, that's when he stood up and was a roaring lion. That's what he's looking for. Not somebody that's interested in themselves and their own situation, their own circumstances, and the things people may say or things that may happen, but somebody whose whole focus is to glorify Christ. And he found that in the humble servant. Integrity is the third word because in Psalm 78 at verse 71, the very next verse, from the care of the ewes with suckling lamb he brought him. To shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hand. Integrity is what you are when nobody else is around. Integrity is not just making a good impression because we can't fake it with God. God's not impressed with externals, remember? We have a tendency to gauge things that way. Samuel did. Israel did. Such is the human curse. But God focuses on inward qualities. Those things that take time and discipline to develop. David was a teenager, but he had him developed. God saw them and selected him. Things like commitment, dependability, faithfulness, perseverance, Sacrifice, self-control. It's a life that understands what sin is, and it calls sin, sin. Listen, we live in a culture that has an aversion to calling anything sin. When's the last time you heard somebody accused of sin? On the evening news, in the paper, online. We don't even use the word anymore. We have an aversion to sin. But the Bible calls it sin. Willful disobedience to a known law. Willful disobedience to the moral law of God. And it's sin. 
Even in the church it has trouble calling sin, sin. People are guilty of sin, involved in sin, living in sin. And we just rationalize it away and go on. It's sin. And we've all committed it and come short of the glory of God. That's why we praise the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers us from sin. That means we don't do sin anymore. We're moving in a different direction. Listen, if you want to know a check, we want to see a checklist of what it is to live as God commands, read Job, read Job 31. Not, not right now, not that, just, just remember, Job 31, go home, read it this afternoon. That's how a Christian lives. Or it's like Daniel Berrigan said, the Jesuit. If you want to follow Jesus with all your heart, you'd better look good on wood. Think about that. If you're going to follow Jesus with all your heart, you better look good on wood. Because we have a cross the bear, don't we? Now, probably no one hung around for David to show up. The town would have remembered their surprise that Jesse's fine sons had been turned down for such an important job, and they remembered David showed up late, as usual. Wouldn't be long before the seven brothers were back dominating the town again with their pushiness and David was back out watching the sheep, out of sight, out of mind. But I believe it's the intent of the scripture to turn every one of us here hearing this into realizing something essentially Davidic about himself and this is what you got to get this morning. And it's this. In my insignificance, in my sheep-keeping obscurity, in the mundaneness and routine of my life, I am chosen. And until we come to grips with that, but as soon as we come to grips with that, it is forward fast. It's highly significant that the David story features an ordinary person like each of us. His father failed to present him to Samuel. His brothers, he was a non-entity. And worse, if you study his genealogy, he had bad blood. He had Moabite blood in his lineage. The choice of David, the runt, the shepherd to be anointed, to be a sign of God's working in human life and history is surely intended to convey to each one of us this morning, all of us ordinary men and women, all of us plain folk, all of us undistinguished, all of us insignificant, all of us lacking social skills and peer recognition are elected into God's family. Called, chosen, anointed. I think it's of considerable importance to realize the centerfold account of Scripture of a human being living by faith comes to us in the form of a hackathon. An insignificant shepherd 
who was, he wasn't ordained to the priesthood. He wasn't called to ministry. He was just a layperson, a hackathon. But there's not a hint in this story that he is insignificant or inadequate at all. So let's remove that from our thoughts this morning as we look at our own life and say, well, yeah, but that, that's not me. If you're walking with Christ, this is you, because we're coming to the third person. And that's the kingdom, and that third person I want us to focus on is me. Me. I'd say you, because I'd rather you deal with it than me, but I've got to deal with it too. So let's deal with it. In Exodus chapter 19, if you remember when we were coming through the Exodus, and God was leading his people out. And here was his plan and purpose as we're painting this, uh, this broad brushstroke over the, over the Scripture. God says in Exodus 19.16, you, speaking to his people, and I'm just talking to those that know a personal walk with Jesus Christ or walking the walk. Christ is the center of your life. You know Jesus. You're saved. You're redeemed. You're on your way to heaven. If you're nominal, if you're outside the family of faith, uh, my prayer is certainly that God gets, your, gets a hold of your heart and brings you in. But I'm talking to the body of Christ right now. And he said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, all of the offices and jobs in the church are servant positions for assisting and encouraging men and women to be the people of God. And we are not here to see that you are simply a crowd of religious consumers. Our culture, listen, Talk about a biblical mindset versus a world mindset or worldview. How critical it is because our culture holds experts and professionals in a regard that's inflated out of proportion to reality. You can amen it, but that's what our culture is saying and that's what our people in our pews are buying into. That somehow whoever occupies this is somehow smarter, more intelligent, more everything than you out there in the pew. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the result is that we regard the laity as near idiot. Competent only when they're consulting an expert. Well, is this what you have determined in prayer before God as you've studied your word? Have you talked to the pastor yet? Don't be stupid. It happens. Listen, we turn responsibility of learning over to the educational experts, and you know what the result of that is? We have a population that's unable to think for itself, ignorant of most literature and history, Unable to defend itself against the manipulations of advertisers and politicians. We turn responsibility for develop, developing and repairing relationship over to the psychological experts. What's the result of that? Experiences of intimacy are at an all-time low. Emotional, emotional health is alarmingly bad. Friendships are rare. Marriage and families are in ruins. I said two weeks ago, I shared a little uh, quote from John MacArthur. Uh, if you remember, it was on the, on the line of not having rebellious children or there shouldn't be rebellious children in Christian homes. 
And afterwards I felt a little, because I didn't tell you why that should be and what you can do about that. Men, fathers, Saturday, this weekend, Friday night and Saturday is the men's retreat. You need to be there. Now, I know a number of things are going to happen, but I know my part on Saturday morning is I'm going to talk to Christian fathers and tell you why that is and how to not have rebellious children. And then after the first of the year, Christian ministry is going to provide a thing for parents telling you how not to have rebellious children. Do yourself a favor, right? Get started. Because the family's going down the tubes. We turn responsibilities for faith over to the religious experts. What's the result? We got a Christianity that identifies itself with bumper stickers. Christian media celebrities that nurture in us the insatiable appetite for watching religious performances and buying junk religious artifacts. And the experts make a lot of money from that stuff. But to the laity trained from infancy to defer to the experts, experience neither confidence nor competence in believing and in praying and in loving your neighbor and in welcoming strangers and in reaching our neighborhood and reaching our community and all the rest. And, and if you're really honest about it, probably a lot of us this morning would have said, I'm just leaving that up to Pastor Ryan and the elders and they'll figure it out. Because I'm just a hackathon. God says, no, you are a kingdom of priests. One author says, these servants, pastors, teachers, elders, deacons are set among the people to counter the downward slipping inertia by which people tend to congeal into an undifferentiated mud. When the church is healthy, the little ones aren't demeaned, but they begin to acquire the initiative and originality as the pastors and elders and leaders serve them. Listen, let me just tell you uh, something. I, I had one of our teenagers come to me a week or two ago, said, Pastor, this is a teenager. This is one of our hackathons. said, Pastor. Um, I just found out. I got this information in town, in the city parks of town. The ash bore, you know, which has gone through and destroyed all the ash trees all over the place. And they're just dead. And so the city wants to plant new trees in all the different parks, but they need help. And she, and she comes to me and she said, Pastor, that's something our youth group needs to do. We can help our community. We can help our parks. And we can help our neighbors. And this is just my idea. What do you think? And I said, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Talk to the other leaders. They thought it was a great idea. So guess what? November 1st, we're planting trees. Now, two of the primary components in our Wednesday, uh, Sunday night youth ministry over here, we meet from 6 to 8, two of the primary components in that I didn't think of, our leaders thought of. The greatest outings we've been on this year weren't my idea. And at this point you're saying, what are we paying you for? 
because I can recognize good ideas. <laughs> and the hackathon's got a lot of them. <laughs> and so we organize and we get to it. You will be to me a kingdom of priests, ministering to your neighborhood and your community and those around you and those that you live with at school and in the office and so on and so forth. Now, nothing in their experience in Egypt would have prepared them for that definition of their life. In Egypt, there were a few priests. They had all the power. They controlled all the rituals. They ran the affairs of the nation. They were extravagantly dressed. They were privileged. No one would have dreamed to do anything priestly. It'd be easier for that checkout clerk in the grocery store to do open heart surgery. Can you imagine God going in there, pulling that kid off the end of the line, saying, quit banging, quit banging, I want you to do open heart surgery. That's where some of you are this morning. Because he's saying, you are priest. Take a truck driver, you know, just pulled in and, and say, oh, hey, uh, get out the airport. We got a 747. We got to get down to Orlando. You fly it. And I know that's, that's, what, that's what it would have meant to them. That's what this means to you, isn't it? Get over it. They weren't to have priests. They were to be priests. And the first, you say, well, Pastor Rick, that, you're talking the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament. We got to the New Testament. And that's when, you know, the pastor and elders began to know everything. And we just are undifferentiated must sitting in pews. No, that was never the intent. When you get to the New Testament, listen to this, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Revelation 1.6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve the God and Father. Called something by God that no one would have dreamed of calling us. They were forced to figure out, okay, Pastor Rick, I'm with you. I got it. I'm a priest. Now, what does a priest do? What is a priest? Not how you dress. Not what temple you're in charge of. Not what ritual you preside over. But what is a priest? Here it is, and this is the thing that if you get, well, get all these other things I've been telling you about, but when you get those in place, this is the thing that's going to make the difference if we move forward or not. A priest presents a person to God, or presents God to a person. But a priest is someone that makes the God connection verbal and visible to another person. That's what a priest does, and that's what we're called to. To make visible and verbal God to another person. Tomorrow at work, God's priest will connect God to that coworker. Tomorrow at school, God's uh, servants will connect God to another student. A priest shows that God and humans have something to do with each other, and have everything to do with one another. How easy it is for mankind to forget about God who saves. And how easily distracted from the God who is with us that we need priests to remind us 
of God and confront us with God. And for the most part, <laughs> they're priests that don't really look like priests. Don't really act like priests. Don't dress like priests. Don't talk like priests. But you're priests, nevertheless. David was such a priest. He's never called a priest. He's called a hackathon. Youngest runt. But everyone around him knew and recognized God's grace and mercy that was mediated through his life. I've never quite gotten over my surprise or my dismay at being treated with deference by so many people just because I'm a pastor. I'm a hakatan. I'm a grocery guy. When I retire, I'm going to go back and bag groceries. That's my life dream. So David is selected, chosen, and anointed. And we really don't know who he is, do we? Until we get down the way. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. See, God doesn't deal in numbers. Or abstractions. He deals in people. And he's called us this morning to move forward as a kingdom of priests. Hackathons. Been faithful in little, faithful for 40 years, but faithful in a great deal more that God has in store for us if we will say yes to God. Thank you, Father, for these minutes and these words. May they bless our hearts, and Father, may we as Samuel rise up and obey them for your glory. Amen.